Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Turn with me to John 8, please. That would be great. That's where we'll be at this morning. We are beginning a, a new section of John, so starting a new series today called A Controversy and Conflict. So for some of you, that will work well with the uh, holiday, Christmas holiday. A lot of us, unfortunately, have some conflict. It was a badly timed joke, I guess. <laughs> In this section of John, we no longer find resistance to Jesus sort of gently, steadily rising. Now in this section, we find full-scale eruption of conflict. As Jesus has gone public with who he is, then in John chapter 5, 6, and 7, there is a steady increase of challenge and conflict. But in the latter part of John chapter 8, that really erupts in full-scale conflict. In fact, it will escalate to the point where at the end of the chapter there is an attempt to kill Jesus. This morning we'll be covering this powerful interchange between Jesus and the religious leaders who were in opposition to him. As we walk through this text, look closely with me at the claims and the counterclaims that are made back and forth. There's 21 verbal exchanges in this passage. And look for how Jesus turns the accusations against him into accusations back on the people who were accusing him. I hope that the Lord will use the word today to encourage you wherever you are in your spiritual journey. And uh, this passage should come with a warning label. This is a aggressive, confrontational passage. And yet, I hope as we look at it together that the Lord will warm your heart and love for him, that we might know him better as a result. So we're in John chapter 8, 12 through 59, and Rachel and Katira are going to come read for us. Come on up, please. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I told you that you will die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if, and if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thank you. Thank these ladies for sharing with us. In, in every single chapter of the Gospel of John, we find essentially the same thing over and over and over. As John says, here is the truth about who Jesus is. And let me encourage you 
to come and believe in him. If we're not careful as we walk through a book like this, and perhaps even the Bible in general, we can find that it might feel laborious. It might feel repetitious. It might even feel boring. And yet, every passage in the Bible contains particular contributions to faith that are not in other parts. So we need them all if we would understand God as he actually is. So what we want to do as a church is just uncover what's in the next passage together each week. Which incidentally, now that we have uh, four pastors making up the leadership of Church of Hill, understand that most principally, the God-given assignment they have is to encourage all of us to believe and to obey Jesus, and to do so by using the Word of God. So publicly like this, privately in conversation, and in between in small groups, their charge is to encourage us, invite us to believe in Jesus and keep believing in Jesus, and to teach us to encourage each other to do the same thing. So just like we did last week and the week before that and a year ago, Lord willing, 10 years from now, what we'll do as a church is we'll do what we're doing right now. We'll open God's Word, we'll read the next section, we'll hear from God, we'll submit to Him together by means of the Spirit, and grow up into obedience in Christ. This is what God's people do, which is what we'll find together today in our text. Now, this is a long passage, and as you can tell from the reading, it is a confrontational passage. Instead of going paragraph by paragraph, what I want to do is try to summarize for you what the passage as a whole is saying. And so we'll look together at the claims Jesus makes, and then we'll consider what's underneath the opposition against him. And that will take us the rest of the time we have together. Jesus said a lot of things about himself in this passage. I want to pull out just three of the most significant things. Number one, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. If you look at verse 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Think of a time in which you've been in the past in, in a dark room and suddenly someone turns on their phone. There's a, a small light that can illuminate a whole room. It's incredible. Or maybe you've been out camping and you finally found your flashlight. So you could shine that little light on something you needed. Uh, when I was younger and a bit more fit, I frequently went scuba diving. And I'll never forget the first time I went scuba diving in the dark. It was incredible experience. It was like you could pull away from the other people, and besides the bubbles going up the side of your face, there was no sense of what was up and down. And everybody's flashlights shining underwater were like giant lightsabers. Just incredible. So light has this way of, of drawing our attention, doesn't it? We've all experienced that. And yet, when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, he's certainly saying more than, I draw attention. He's saying a lot more than that. The context of this famous phrase, or saying, I am the light of the world, 
is the exact same context that we had two weeks ago. If you were here, you'll remember when Jesus stood up in the Feast of Booth, this week-long celebration, and he claimed to be the one who would bring living water. Well, this passage finds us in the exact same place. Again, with Jesus taking a symbol of what was happening in the moment and showing how he was the fulfillment of it. In this case, the Jews, as they gathered at the start of the day, at the evening as the sun set, they would light big lanterns, and with these lanterns, the whole town, the whole city of Jerusalem would be lit. People would sing psalms and praise God. Jesus, as these lights are lighting up the worship of him, he says, I am ultimately the one through whom you can find the joy of knowing God. I am the light of the world. I am the one that brings life. It's an incredibly beautiful picture. In the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, God had come to the people of God and lit their way as they journeyed through the desert. And he did so in the form of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. And God said, I am the light that lights your way. Jesus is saying, I am the one from the book of Exodus who lit your way, and now I will light up your life through the gospel that you would know me. Jesus is the light. Now, unless this is your first time in a church gathering, you've probably heard that before. But the second thing Jesus claimed might be newer to you. Or maybe you've heard it, but the significance didn't really grasp you. Jesus claimed to have an utterly unique relationship with God the Father. He claimed that no one else knew the Father, was of the Father, in the same way that Jesus was. A few of these verses that show us that are verse 17, the latter half. The Father who sent me bears witness about me. Verse 23, I am from above, I am not of this world. Verse 26, Jesus claimed to declare what he heard from the Father. Verse 29, Jesus takes confidence that God the Father is with him. Verse 49, Jesus refers to God with the pronoun my, my Father. Verse 54, Jesus states that it is God my Father who glorifies me. Now all except that last statement, we who are Christians would be accustomed to that kind of talk. Hopefully every day you pray, my Father, as you talk to God. And yet, if you were alive at this moment in time, you would not have talked that way. People didn't have that kind of intimacy often in their thoughts about God. God wasn't thought of as my Father. And so Jesus, as he's claiming to be one in relationship with the Father, he's claiming something utterly unique. And while we might jump over that, the Pharisees, the opposition against him certainly did not. They understood that he was making a claim to be equal with the Father. Now, the third thing Jesus claimed for himself in this text is that he claimed to be the divine Messiah. 
be kind to your dog. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's not just bad grammar. There's more than that, of course, going on here. This is the ego eimi in Greek. It's Jesus' clear, undeniable claim to be God. Jesus saying, I am the God who said to Moses in the burning bush, I am. I, I am the Messiah of Isaiah 40 through 55, who promised that God himself would come and would rescue his people. I am the I am. I am God. Friends, Jesus is God in a human body. We sung about that today in many of our Christmas songs. So what Jesus is saying, if we add all these things up, is that Jesus says to deny me is to walk in darkness. It's to live a life of shame and sin. And Jesus says to deny me is to not have a relationship with God the Father. Jesus says that to deny me is in fact to discard God himself. And yet what we find in this passage is not widespread agreement with Jesus, but rather opposition to him. The Pharisees were outright hostile in their rejection of him. In fact, denial of Jesus is everywhere. So the question I want to ask in our remaining few minutes that we have together this morning is why? Why? Why if God himself in the flesh was telling other people who claim to know God, I am God here to rescue you, why did they deny him? And to say to us, why do people still reject Jesus' message? The why in this passage is so powerfully exposed by Jesus. And it is, in fact, perhaps for you this morning, the most important thing you never wanted to hear. Jesus, in a very confrontational way, will say, this is why people reject me. And it is still the same reason why people do the same today. Now, on the surface, before we jump into it, I would say we're at a disadvantage. Because today we tend to think about a rejection of Jesus as sort of an innocent dismissal. Like, well, you've heard about the gospel and you simply don't mentally assent to the facts of the gospel. And therefore, we just fundamentally disagree about what happened. As though there is this innocent dismissal. But friends, this passage shows us that there is not really neutrality when it comes to spiritual things. You see, to say there's an innocent dismissal of Jesus for someone who has heard the gospel and understands its most basic claims is to misunderstand the nature of humanity. You see, it assumes that when we hear truth claims, 
that we possess some kind of uh, posture of moral objectivity. It assumes that we are clean slates in which we can have a cafeteria of options spiritually and be able in and of ourselves to pick the one that's right. And yet there is no spiritual neutrality. That doesn't exist. There's a lie. It's not true. No one has ever rejected Jesus from a posture of innocence. To put that a different way, if you've heard the gospel and understood what it means and yet don't believe, then your lack of belief is not because apart from the implications of Christ, you simply disagree with Christ. Instead, it's because you understand the implications and you don't want them. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. You don't believe because your nature is fallen and is enslaved to sin. You don't want God because you want to live life apart from God. This is what Jesus uncovers in this passage. Unbelief, quite apart from what it feels like, isn't neutrality. It is obstinate against God. We'll see from these religious leaders that the heart of rejecting Jesus, particularly religious rejection of Jesus, revolves around two things. One, a misplaced confidence. And two, a phony faith. Let's consider both of those as we look at this passage. First, a misplaced confidence. You're still here. I find this amazing. This is a hard passage. Thank you for laboring with me. Many of the Pharisees and other religious people in the day rejected Jesus because they had a misplaced confidence in what would make them right with God. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with the story, but very briefly, we're in the New Testament, in one of the Gospels. And if you were to reach back in the Bible to the very beginning, you'd come to a book called Genesis that tells us the story from the very creation account of the world. And from Genesis 1 to 11, well, actually Genesis 3 through 11, we find the world getting worse and worse and worse, and further and further and further from God. But then something incredible happens. In Genesis chapter 12, God, God came to the man of Abram. He said, Abram, you don't follow me, you don't obey me, you don't know me, but I am making myself plainly clear to you. And you, I have chosen. So you pack up and go to this new place, and through you, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. And so from Genesis 12, if we fast forward all the way to John 8, we find in many ways that God had fulfilled that promise. He had created a new people group called the Jews. And through these Jews, the Messiah had come. And through this Messiah, the gospel would then go out and bless people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In a nutshell, that's the Bible. The entire Bible, that's what the Bible's about. God's plan to rescue people through the gospel and bless people from all nations. It's a glorious gospel. 
And yet, at this moment in time, in John chapter 8, some people had misunderstood what the promise was. They came to believe that because of their physical ancestry, that they were right with God. That apart from active trust and faith and belief in Him, that simply because of their ethnicity, they were somehow better off than everybody else. Jesus said that's not how it works. They believed they had an inherent right standing with God because they were of the lineage of Abraham. Where do I get that? Well, look at verse 22. Their answer to Jesus was, we are the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Do you hear the, the spiritual arrogance there? We are better off than everybody else because we're connected to Abraham. And then down in verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. What these religious leaders were saying is this, there's a quality about me inherently that makes me right with God. Functionally, this resulted in arrogance and a complete misunderstanding, both of God and of their status with God. You see, if we, if we misunderstand how someone is made right with God, then we misunderstand our own identity. We don't really know who we are. They thought if I'm inherently right with God because I'm born as a Jew, as a Jew, it doesn't matter what I do. Now listen, I understand that probably no one in this room this morning that's hearing these words thinks because of your ethnicity that you're somehow right with God. You're probably not looking at the color of your skin, thinking God loves me and I'm right with him simply because I am X. That isn't the way we think anymore. But we're still tempted to misplaced spiritual confidence. Are we not? There are things we count on to make us acceptable and right with a holy God that God says it doesn't work like that. There's an infinite number of examples. Let me give you just three very quickly. Number one, I was born in a Christian home. My parents were Christians, so I've always been a Christian, too. Number two, kind of a generic spirituality. Sounds something like this. As long as you're sincere in whatever you believe, then God will be good enough for God. So sincerity of belief, not the substance of what you're believing, is all it takes. Number three, an outward moral behavior. I'm a good person, I do my homework, I pay my bills, I don't kick my dog, I help out with the neighbors, have a need. I'm not violent. Friends, if you're counting on anything like that, like any of those things, as the basis upon which God will accept you, then you are in a place of spiritual peril. None of those things will make you right with God. Any more than a Jew's ethnicity in the first century would make them right with God. In love, I would tell you what the passage tells you. 
You are self-deceived. You have convinced yourself of something that's not true. Because the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's not physical lineage that matters. It's spiritual lineage. It's been connected to Jesus, infused with him in his life, death, and resurrection. Misplaced spiritual confidence obscures reality. The reality is that apart from Jesus, you are not a son or daughter of God. You are a slave of sin. Look at verse 34, that's what Jesus says. He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, whose lifestyle is rooted in unbelief, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find a place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. That is, are any of you old enough to remember, I forget his name, the boxer that bit the other guy's ear off? Tyson. This is a biting the ear off kind of moment. Jesus says, you think physically because you came from Abraham. That you're right with God. But Abraham's not your father. Satan. See, a rejection of Jesus is satanic opposition to God. It's either darkness or light, freedom or slavery, adoration of God in Christ, or no relationship with the Father. All. There is no third way. So Jesus, in loving rebuke, takes off the ear. Friend, the only road to righteousness with God is joining Jesus on the road to Calvary. So if there's a rejection of Jesus, then there's a rejection of God even if there's a claim to know God. But the problem for Jesus' opponents was even deeper than misplaced confidence. If we peel back the onion another layer deeper in this text, what we see is that this, this crack in the door of misplaced confidence actually allows us to see into a whole world full of phony faith. They didn't actually believe what they said they believed. Jesus spoke the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. As he walked the earth, he was the perfect revelation of the character of God, because he was God in flesh. And then he demonstrated his deity through all kinds of incredible signs. We've seen many together as we've been working our way through this book, Lord willing, as we press on all the way through next May, see it again and again and again. Or why don't you text again because you're irritated that I'm being so confrontational? No. Someone else is texting. Check your phone. What? 
Last week, somebody texted me in the room about something I said. And actually, what they said was really interesting. But sometime I'll take that if you want. These leaders, while claiming to follow God, rejected the complete, full, final revelation of God. Do you see how crazy that is? While claiming to have faith in God, they rejected God, which revealed they didn't actually have faith in God at all. They were self-deceived. They didn't believe what they actually said they believed. They believed. There was no belief. That outright rejection of Jesus displayed the phoniness of their faith. Friends, Jesus teaches that if you hear the gospel and claim to follow God while rejecting that gospel, then your faith is just a sham. Rejecting Jesus is not a benign uncertainty. It's not being undecided and a little bit confused. No, it's a stubborn, adamant, defiant, rebellious commitment to live in sin. It's a refusal to follow revelation of God. Now, if we step back from that into the general principle, here's what it is. Genuine disciples are people who hear, who believe, and who follow the Word of God. Genuine disciples are people who hear what God says. It doesn't go in one ear and out the other. They listen, and then they obey. These are the things Christians do. Look at verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had, if you read in the context, had, quote, believed, and had something that looked like faith but didn't turn out to be the real thing. Jesus said to the disciples who, quote, believed him, if you abide in my word. If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, Christians are people who have genuinely come to know God, and therefore are increasingly falling more and more in love with God and what God says. And then through the strength and power of the indwelling spirit, increasingly obey God. I don't mean with perfection. I don't mean every day you wake up and you genuinely are thrilled with an affection for God and open your Bible with glee and therefore it's easy to obey Him all day, every day. It's not what Jesus meant. Jesus meant if you remain in my word. If you look at the general course of your life and there is a steady uptick and love for God, and obedience to God, then you can be sure that the Son has set you free. But these disciples, these followers who claim to be followers of God, didn't have that. You see, a deception or duplicity in your belief will always eventually reveal itself in behavior. So while we might Say, yes, I follow God. 
What we ought to actually look at is our actions. Because God's people, while we might fight and kick and scream at times, we eventually obey. Because Jesus is our king. These followers claimed to follow God. They were actually following Satan. Have you ever heard something like this? Maybe in a small group. Pray with me for Sally. Concerned about where she is spiritually. She's always gossiping. Did you hear what Sally said about Sue? Friend, what someone's saying when they do that is I, I, I follow what God says about asking the people of God to pray for the people of God and yet in a phony fake way because they're actually disobeying God by gospel and friend if you can do that for week upon week month upon month, year upon year then not feel rebuked by God and drawn to repent then Jesus would say, you are not abiding in me. You are not a Christian. Another example might be the person that says, I, yes, I've read the Bible. I understand that it says homosexuality is wrong. But God is love, and God made me this way. God wants me to be happy. So God blesses this gay or lesbian lifestyle that I have fully taken on. So there's this sense in which the person's claiming to believe in a God of love, and yet rejecting the love of God as revealed in the Bible, where he says, without forsaking a lifestyle of any illicit sexual sin, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, we're not saved by what we do. But if our actions don't eventually reveal a change, then we, in fact, are not saved. Jesus says to these would-be followers of God, you are not actually followers of God. God's people hear. God's people obey. God's people submit to him. So with nothing but love and affection for you, I would want to say the same thing Jesus has said. That is, if you want to test if you have genuine faith, if you want to see if there's a misplaced confidence, if you want to see if your faith is genuine or if it's phony, then look at your life. Look at the way you live. Not is it perfect. Not have you never tried to wander away but found yourself inevitably drawn back. Not is the Christian life difficult. But is there this sense in which God speaks through God's word and God draws you to obey him? If so, then the Lord Jesus has in fact saved you and is now working it out in your lifestyle. If not, 
friend, you do not know it. And yet you can. Jesus said, when you see that I am the one lifted up, when the died on the cross, in your place, rose again in victory, that my life is given to you. It is a grave error to believe you will be accepted by God. You see no outward evidence of that in a changed life. There are no Christians who don't increasingly obey the Master. So this was Jesus' assessment. While they accused him Jesus turned around and said, no, accusers, I will now accuse you. You have placed spiritual confidence in the wrong faith. In the faith you think you have, you don't have it all. Friends, this is a hard message. It is the most loving thing Jesus could ever say. If you're counting on anything other than the death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf as the reason for your acceptance before God, then this rebuke is designed by God to be an invitation to turn from sin, to turn to Jesus. It's a gift. They're the loving words one who wants you to come to him. Friend, if you'll turn from a life of sin, accept that Jesus' death was in your place, and that his life is available to you today, then you will be set free. If you're claiming some sort of spirituality, but it's not rooted in explicit knowledge of and trust in Jesus Christ, then this is an invitation to you give up what's fake and come to what's real. The love and grace and kindness and truth of Jesus Christ. If you find yourself doing external things that look like the things Christians do, and yet when you're alone, you find it much easier to do the things Christians don't do. And there is no real desire or pattern of a changed life, then this is an invitation from Jesus himself. Come to me. I will give you life. My death was your death. My life is your life if you come to me. Friend, if you genuinely come to know Jesus, this doesn't mean that every day it's easy to abide in the Word of God. There are days that it is hard. Perhaps you're aware of some part of your soul in which there is a dark closet of sin. You've put a padlock over it, nobody else knows. There's a part of you that is not seeking to obey. And Jesus' hard word is an invitation 
that you through prayer would open that closet door, that Jesus might shine the light in there. Jesus will get your obedience. You can either come willingly and open that door, or eventually he will kick it down. Because Jesus in grace and truth is a jealous God and he will have all of you. So I want you to open that. Allow him in grace to shine the light in that you might be set free experientially and find the joy of walking with him in all areas of life. For if the Son has set you free, you will be free indeed. This is good news. Friends, come to Jesus. He is the light. He uniquely has a relationship with the Father and can bring us into the adopted family of God. Jesus is God made flesh. Jesus is the one lifted up on the cross through which all of God's people will be saved. So come to Jesus. There is no one else to go to. Join me in here. Before I voice a prayer on behalf of all of us, I encourage you to spend a moment in quiet prayer yourself, asking God what business you would have with Him based on John chapter 5. Thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. Thank you that in your kindness and unending mercy, you came in, spoke today through your scriptures. We recognize that this is not an easy message. And yet we thank you that you have chosen to tell us the truth about you and about us. Thank you most of all for Jesus. I pray this morning, if there's anyone here today who has existed in a state of misplaced confidence, or who in fact has had a phony faith, right now, even as I pray, God, that you would open their eyes. They might see you turn from sin and place trust in Christ, they would save them. That God then, before they leave this room, they would come to one of our pastors or speak to a friend that came ahead and tell them, God saved me today. We might rejoice to him. God, I also pray in a general way for this church family called Church on the Mill. 
But God, we would be a people increasingly in love with you as you speak through your word and call us to obedience. May we look different than the world. Not because we're better, but because you, in fact, have rescued us out of slavery to sin and made us now slaves of righteousness that we might enjoy 